We'll read beginning in verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Skip down to verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Skip down to uh, verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Well, before we get started, let's pray. Just ask for God's help as we look at the word together. Lord, we need you, God. We ask that uh, you would illuminate our minds and enable us to look into your word and to walk away. Lord, experiencing this verse that your word was breathed out into our lives, that we experience the profit of teaching, the reproof of teaching, the correction of teaching, the training of teaching. Lord, we want to walk away here equipped for every good work that you have for us. And we can't do that naturally. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to brood over this meeting and to speak to our hearts and enable our lives, Lord, to be transformed because we've heard your truth. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, two basic things going on here in this text and really beyond, uh, beyond chapter 3 into First and Second Timothy are wrapped up with these two major movements. If you read through these letters, you see Paul is saying a couple of things to Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, there is a looming crisis at hand. There's a challenge to the faith of God's people happening now. It's beginning now and it's going to grow. And so he's presenting that challenge to sober the church. And then at the same time, on the other hand, he is giving them the cure for the challenge. He is giving them the remedy for the challenge that faces the church. And that remedy is totally wrapped up in both letters to Timothy with the scriptures where he he follows this with saying, "Okay, what are you going to do about the fact that here's what's happening in the last times and they will have they're going to be desiring all these things and running from this doctrine to that doctrine and swerving from the truth. You see in, in chapter two, verse 18, they've swerved from the truth, saying the resurrection hasn't happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. All of this, all these perturbations, all of this unrest, all this false teaching is going on in the church. And he's saying, what do you do about it? Chapter four, I charge you in the presence of God and Jesus Christ. Preach the word. 
So it's God's word that grounds the church. He's saying, Timothy, there's a crisis at hand. Timothy, you're grounded. Stay grounded and get the church grounded because of the crisis of faith that's going on in their time. Now, the world hasn't changed. And there are still there have been if you read church history, you find that there's always some trick in the bag of the enemy to, to trip the church up. So every age has had its set of attacks and assaults and the, the attacks always change. They change based on the landscape and the cultural life and the societies in which the church is seeking to live out its witness. And so in our time, there is a very real sense in which this is real for us. There are current challenges in our lives as people who live in the 21st century in this country in particular that are facing us that cause us to need to go to scripture to get grounded. So I want to talk a little bit really just before we get into the prophet of scripture for these challenges. I want to talk about our challenges. What is the crisis in our country? I'm going to use two illustrations to get at that. We live in Blurville, USA. We live in, in a time in which truth is up for grabs. Uh, there are multiple ideas and voices. The world is getting smaller. We're becoming a global community. You're like three clicks from Somalia. You, you can find out all kinds of things. And not just when you go seek it, it comes and finds you. It shows up in your inbox. When you go check your Yahoo, there it is in the side window. So we're in the information age, and there is a real sense in which secularism has never been so unified as it is right now. And that presents a unique challenge in the history of the church for us. Two things are shaking down as we speak. Both of them have everything to do with my faith, your faith, and the faith of the next generation. April 21st, next month, there's some things going on in the Anglican Church right now. The Anglican Church has given us some of Christian history's best men and women. John and Susanna Wesley, George Whitfield, J.C. Ryle, John Stott, Great men and women have come to us through this church for all of our differences. There have been some great people who have come to us and serve the church from the Anglican Fellowship. Well, one of the most godly leaders in our time, a humble, godly, really statesman of the Christian faith, a man who has fought courageously in some of the most important battles in modern times for the church, J.I. Packer, author of Knowing God, the classic Knowing God. If J.I. Packer doesn't come into line with the Anglican Church's position on something, he is going to be removed from his office of leading in the church next month. Now, this, this has all been stirring. He's been, he's been struggling with church authorities for the past ten years vigorously. And it's come down to this moment. You will either come into line or you're out. J.I. Packer was asked recently in an interview how long he's been part of Anglicanism. He said all of his life he's been living for 82 years, ordained decades and decades ago. Why? Why is he being removed from office? Well, because he does not believe in the sanctity of same-sex marriage. Whereas the most powerful leaders in his province now do. And when he was asked in this interview, just last week, there's a video interview, when he was asked, what does it feel like to labor in the fold all your life 
only to see toward the end of your life, only to watch your denomination embrace and call holy homosexual marriage. And he said, in a word, sick. Now, swing the camera over into talk show, the talk show world. She's held by many in the media to be the most powerful woman in the world. I believe it was Time Magazine called her one of the top five influential women in modern times. Oprah Winfrey has now enrolled 700,000 students to attend on Monday nights and to read through and study through Eckhart Tolle's book, The New Earth. She grew up Baptist the first time she realized that the Bible's view of God was off base. She was sitting, she was a young woman in the church. She was listening to the message on the attributes of God and he's talking about love and mercy and she said, and I was just enraptured in all of it until she said, God is a jealous God. And that's when things clicked and she said, no, 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 he's not jealous. No, my God is a God of love and of compassion and of mercy. And now she's now she's walking into her backyard. She said, I watched this on the on the website this week. She's going into her backyard and she's decisively unnaming everything in the universe. She'll go into her backyard, sit underneath her trees and think they're not trees. That's not grass. We're all one. Now, philosophical history calls that monism. Church history calls it paganism. It's problematic. But to the tune of hundreds of thousands of people in our country, people are sitting underneath this and becoming students of car carrying views of paganism. Now, meanwhile, sociologists, both Christian and non, are calling this the post-Christian era in the West. They are saying Christianity is, quote, rapidly becoming de-Westernized. Eighty-five percent of Christian teens do not believe in the existence of absolute truth. Seventy-seven to eighty-eight percent, seventy-five to eighty-eight percent of Christian teens will leave the church by, their, by the end of their freshman year in college. There is a crisis going on in faith in this country right now. Welcome to the worldview training through the public school system, where the public school system now enjoys 14,000 seat hours in which the underlying worldview is atheistic, secular humanism. It says that God is irrelevant. It says that human beings are grown up germs. It says that truth is not absolute or objective. It's, it's created by a given society, agreed upon values. Ethics are not normative for everyone. They're, they're shifting and they're culturally determined. That's the basic worldview that underlies the government education system of our day. 14,000 hours later, don't be surprised when our kids come out and they end up by the end of their freshman year leaving the church. The major building blocks of society, marriage and family, are teetering as we speak. An op-ed piece in the L.A. Times this week after Governor Spitzer's resignation came out. Basically, this, this uh, man from one of the higher institutions of learning in our country said, "Come, don't get on the guy. Man's genes are wired for sexual diversity. That's just the reality. Come on, nobody gets on male lions for sleeping with more than one lioness. That's nature. 
Radical views of abortion and euthanasia are being touted in the highest and most prestigious institutions of learning in our country. Peter Singer, a renowned bioethicist from Princeton, argues that abortion should be legal prior to personhood. Now, here's, here's where that's astonishing. Singer's definition of personhood would carry the abortion question not to the second and third trimester of a pregnancy, but into the second year after birth. Now, these, this is in print. This is not some kind of, you know, scare mechanism. This is in print. You can go and you get Peter Singer stuff online. He's written books. He's got publications out there. He's very well known. He's a renowned bioethicist. George Barna said that less than 10% of self-proclaimed born-again Christians in America have a biblical worldview. Furthermore, he found that only 51% of Christian pastors in America have a biblical worldview. Combine that with the postmodern assault on truth, the pursuit of pleasure and wealth and vanity and the fountain of youth in our country. And you see the truth of the fact that America has never needed revival more than it does now. And, And that doesn't mean a series of meetings. That means you and I getting grounded in the truth of God's word and living it out. That's what revival would spell. I think that's why Paul writes it this way to Timothy. He says, The the church has got to be grounded. The culture is powerful. And it's got this undertow. Even those in the faith are, quote, swerving from the truth, upsetting the faith of some. This is going on right now. Now, that can all sound quite remote, this whole cultural wars and battles over truth and ideas and all that stuff. But what about you and me? How does this connect to our lives Sin is the same now as it was then. It might have more sophisticated packaging. It might have digital stuff on it, whatever. But it's the same. The same lie has been going on since day one in the garden. Remember what what Satan said? He, He didn't actually make a propositional statement, did he? All he did was ask a question. It's pretty innocuous. Just, hath God said? Did God really say Why would he say that? That's the same question that perplexes us as Christians, that causes us to wrestle with some of the same things that people in the world wrestle with, where we're tempted. We're tempted to gratify our cravings and our lusts, aren't we? Let's be real. We're tempted to live as though this is all there is. We're tempted to question God in times of suffering. We're tempted to wonder whether or not God really is, whether there really is an afterlife. We're tempted to entertain the idea that even though God's word is against a certain decision in our life, somehow we still think it might be the right thing to do. Isn't that true? We question God's word and in our own hearts we hear, hath God said Listen to Romans 12 too. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. One translation of that, J.B. Phillips says, don't be pressed into the mold of the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Look, here's the reality. If we do not renew our minds in God's word, we will consciously or unconsciously walk in lockstep with the culture. We will follow the culture. You're getting your ideas from somewhere and so am I. 
And if we're not in God's word, look, what did Jesus say? Man shall not live by bread alone. What does that mean? Translation, read this or die. This is your life. This is your sustenance. This guards your soul. This protects you from error. This is what you live upon. Remember what Peter said when everybody was leaving Jesus Christ in droves. He he made some hard sayings and they were starting to walk away. And he said, will you also leave? What did Peter say? Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. In other words, we're backed against the wall. We can't, we can't do life without your word. We must have your word. Vody Bauckham talks about ignorance of God's word, ignorance of a biblical worldview. He says, what happens between till death do us part and I want half? How do two starry-eyed kids turn into a couple of angry, bitter adversaries racing one another to the back door? I believe one of the main causes of the current epidemic of falling out of love is ignorance. Now, he goes on to explain that we've bought into a cultural definition of love. Love is something that feels a certain way. When the feeling goes away, we, we part ways. That's what the prenup was for. We part ways because it was, it was rooted in this Greco-Roman myth. Of eros and, and, and romance and sensuality. And it's not this biblical commitment to be faithful till death do us part. It's not covenant. It's, it's contract. And it's a, it's a weak and anemic contract. The kind of contract that happens in a 21st century America. It breaks when our preference goes the other way. We don't have a biblical worldview of what Covenant is about. Well, how would we? If we don't get that from God's word. You're not going to hear that on the news. The bottom line is this. If Christians have ever needed to put their Bibles to work in renewing their minds and contending for the truth, it is right now. Now, let's transition. We're going to we're going to connect this to discipleship. The word for discipleship in the Greek is methetes, and it means learner. And that means when when you signed on to follow Jesus Christ, whether you knew it or not or liked it or not, he enrolled you in school. He enrolled you in a school and he is calling you to get up and get learning. Right. The first call of the disciples was not to do this and to do that. It was to sit at the feet of Jesus, shut up and listen. Right. So you find him time and time again when Jesus is walking around and he's sharing the parables and he's teaching. And then he goes away with the disciples and they say, what in the world did that mean? And he just teaches them, doesn't he? He says, come unto me and what? Learn of me. So we got enrolled in school and we are called to make progress. And that is not just because of some intellectual pursuit in and of itself. No, it's because truth protects us. Truth has a sanctifying ability in it by the Holy Spirit. When Jesus is about to leave in John 17, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. They are in the world. They are not of the world, but sanctify them. Keep them separate by your word. May your word preserve the sense in which people that I've called are distinct from the world. That's why I said we live in Blurville, USA. You realize when you read through the Old Testament, the history of God's people, how When the people were about to go into the promised land, he said constantly the message was don't mix your ideas with that of the nations. 
You remember these words when you go in. You remember this. You post it when you go up and set up camp. You post it over the door of your house. So that every time you go in and every time you come out, you're reminded, I'm different. I live by God's worldview. God's perspective on life is what governs the choices that I make. So throughout history, when when Israel lost its sense of distinctness from the world, that's when apostasy would happen. When it forgot the laws of God, then it rebelled against God and it went south fast. In the prayers of Paul, you can see how obsessed the New Testament church was with the knowledge of God. Read Paul's prayers. How often he's saying, oh, I want you to know to be filled with the knowledge of God. And not only for them, for himself. When he's creating the the distinctions by which he he says, this is the preeminent value in my life. I count everything as rubbish. Compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, for whose sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. So Paul's primary value was, I want to know God. I want to know him through his word. I want to understand his ways. Read the longest chapter of the Bible, Psalm 119, and read what the Bible does for that psalmist. I'm encouraged by your word. I'm comforted in affliction by your word. I'm revived by your word. I'm cleansed by your word. When I hide your word in my heart, I don't sin against you. God's word has this multifaceted effect of power in the life of his people. It's true in the Old Testament as well. Jeremiah 9.23, thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. Now, there are two basic ways to strengthen our roots in the knowledge of God and the knowledge of the truth. One is central and ultimate, and the other is derived but important. If I don't say that, Peter is going to have me for breakfast on Tuesday morning. The other is derived, but important. The other, the first is central, primary. Yes, I was going to say that, actually. His, his statement is that the Bible is the source and the books are resource. Resources versus the source. So thank you again for the reminder, Peter. So are we clear? Am I going to be all right Tuesday? Is that enough of a qualifier? All right. Know the Bible. We'll just talk practically here. We, we need to know God's word. Yeah. One of the things I love about the Bible is its age. You know, in, in, an, in an era where we are just preoccupied with novelty and newness and trends, I love the wrinkles on the Bible. <laughs> It is old. It has white hair growing out of it. It comes from the mouth of God. It's not only the early church would say it's not only the Vox day, the voice of God. It's the verbum day. It's the words of God. There is no book like this in the world. There's no physical entity like your Bible in the universe. It's the most valuable thing we have. Why? Because it's a letter. Augustine said it's a letter from God. God tells us what he thinks about life, 
what he knows about us. He tells us who we are. He tells us what the problem with the world is. He tells us how that's to be made right. He tells us the essential things that have made the Stoics scratch their heads for hundreds of years. Philosophers have wondered things that God's word gives us access to understand. We need God's word. The story of redemption. I love this. The story of redemption doesn't just go back into the pages of the New Testament. It goes beyond Paul and Timothy and Luke and Ephesus and Macedonia. And it keeps running back and back through silence and exile and prophets and divided kingdoms and Gilgal, Bethel, Cana. It goes back through all these into Egypt, back into Ur of the Chaldees. It's an old book. And it's got old wisdom, ancient wisdom. The ancient paths are in this book and they call out to us to give us wisdom for our lives. They ground us in what makes for a good marriage. We don't need the latest book. God's word gives us divine wisdom on these things. The old saints, they knew their scriptures. Even though they, many of them didn't have the Pentateuch, they didn't have the a copy of their own that they could kind of pull out of their back pocket and say, yeah, this is my thin line, you know. They, uh, but they told stories that sit around the campfire and tell the stories over and over outside of their tents. And the, you could just see the kids out there, their eyes dazzling by the fires. They would hear another story. And the boys would say, tell us again about Samson, the jawbone. And the girls would say, no, let's do Ruth and Boaz. And they would tell about Nebuchadnezzar again and again. It's kind of the Bible's version of the emperor's new groove. Where, where Nebuchadnezzar goes Cusco on him. And he literally, he's got the stringy hair, he's eating the grass, he's drooling on himself. And, and this moment where the kids are just gathered around listening to the story again and finding out about the time when God, God humbled the greatest and most powerful king in the world. And then he restored his sanity and he made that pagan king make one of the greatest statements about the sovereignty of God in the entire Bible. God's word is rich. And you could bump into the average remnant, faithful Israelite 400 years before Jesus and ask him or his six-year-old to tell you the stories about Absalom, about Nadab and Abihu, about the holiness of God. And they knew it. And it grounded God's people when they kept God's word close. When they forgot the law, they fell away. And you can also find out It's interesting. When they forgot the law, they fell away from God. And what would they do when revival would come to the nation? When they would repent? What would they do but stand before the congregation, call a sacred convocation, draw everyone together, and read the law of God again? And that would be the symbol of the fact that now we're back in covenant, faithful to God. God's law, God's word was the pivotal symbol for that. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 through 9. This is the Old Testament Great Commission. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. How? How are we not going to forsake the law of God? How are we going to keep this as the central treasure of God's people? He says, you shall teach them diligently to your children. 
You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. The Old Testament Great Commission was for every believing family to make God's word the centerpiece of their home. And that's what it is today as well. Deuteronomy 6 is still relevant to everyone here. It's God's word to us. It's wonderful to see that in connection with the passage we began with in 2 Timothy, this commission in Deuteronomy 6 made its way across centuries, centuries and centuries, to a woman named Eunice who took it seriously. And how was it in the providential plan of God, how was it that God prepared Paul's protege to receive the baton after Paul died? Timothy. Amazingly, the way that he would receive the baton and the way that he would be prepared for that great gospel mission was that God gave him a mom who loved the Bible. Second Timothy 3.14, if you're still there. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. The things we're talking about this morning, the Bible is the most important thing. It's the only infallible, sufficient, authoritative revelation of God that we have. Get your view of God from this. Get your view of singleness, marriage, Divorce, suffering, forgiveness, salvation, human dignity, depression, child rearing, vocation. Get those views from God's word. Do you know God's word has something to say about every one of those? Spurgeon said, Spurgeon said to his congregation, I was reading some Spurgeon sermons this week. He said, some of you have neglected God's word for so long, I could go to your house right now. Pick up your dusty Bible and write damnation on its cover. <laughs> yeah, I thought you would. You, you and I, we cannot fight our sin and we cannot fight the force of this culture and secularism without a sword. And it's, it's, it's pretty easy to say amen to that and then to go home and let dust continue to gather on our Bibles. Look, a message on being rooted in truth in God's word doesn't get you rooted in truth or in God's word. <laughs> but taking the message home, sticking it into your calendar, gets you rooted in God's word over time, progressively as you go and you read it day after day and it gets in your system over time. It becomes a part of your framework for viewing life. Ephesians 6.17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Look, the degree of our discipleship, the depth of the degree of our discipleship will be related to the degree to which we can fight the fight of faith with God's word in our hands and our hearts. Secondly, not only know God's word, listen to the teachers. Turn to Ephesians. After 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians and Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. He gave them for what purpose? 
to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's a great definition for discipleship. That's where we're aimed. That's where our life is headed if we're disciples. We're aimed at looking just like Jesus. And that comes to us as we are taught God's word. So that, verse 14, here's that protective side of God's word. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness in deceitful schemes. It's interesting that it's the Bible itself that tells us to listen to teachers. Not just that, it tells us to watch the lives of teachers and leaders. Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Now, he's, he's talking about leaders of the past and imitate their faith. So the Bible tells you to look at leaders who have gone before. Look at this thought from John Piper. I love this. Hebrews 11 is a divine mandate to read Christian biography. The unmistakable implication of the chapter is that if we hear about the faith of our forefathers and mothers, we will lay aside every weight and sin and run with endurance the race that is set before us. If we ask the author, how shall we stir one another up to love and good works? His answer would be through encouragement from the living and the dead. Christian biography is the means by which the body of the church, body life of the church, Cuts across the centuries. Look, do you read the old saints? Have you ever read a book by one of the Puritans? Have you ever read a book by, by an 82-year-old man like J.I. Packer? We can learn some things from guys like that. If you read Knowing God by J.I. Packer, modern classic, it will, it will completely explain why J.I. Packer has made his decision the way he made his decision about the Anglican Church dilemma. Why? Because in page after page, he's unfolding a biblical vision of a God of majesty and glory and a God whose word is authoritative. So, when, when everyone around him is shifting and bending, Packer won't move because he fears God. Amen. He fears God and his view of God's glory comes from the Bible. So, it's not surprising when J.I. Packer says in one of the videos, when he's talking about a text in, in Corinthians 6, about homosexuals not inheriting the kingdom of God, and he says, look, you think I'm not tempted to go nice on this, to get soft on this? He doesn't use those words. He says, I don't want to believe that, quote, but I dare not disbelieve it. That's a man anchored in the Bible. That's a man worth reading. By the way, qualify your authors that way. Qualify your authors by their high view of Scripture. And one of the ways that you see their high view of Scripture is those little parentheses marks where there are Scripture texts. Again, read through a book on emerging churches, 340-something pages, only eight parentheses of Scripture. You read through Sinclair Ferguson's The Christian Life, it's about 200 pages, and there are about 10 parentheses on every page. Why? Because Sinclair Ferguson doesn't have any wisdom or experience? No. Because Sinclair Ferguson is saying, in essence, I don't want you to believe this, except insofar as I'm saying what God says about this. Qualify your authors that way. 
if they're willing to say, hath God really said? Come on, couldn't we do, as some modern authors say, couldn't we do the Christian life without the Trinity or the virgin birth? Hath God really said? Can't the faith get along without heady discussions like that? No, no, that's a low view of Scripture. A high view of Scripture says, if the Bible teaches the doctrine of the Trinity, there's no negotiating the doctrine of the Trinity. Read biography. Read, oh, read the letter that Jonathan Edwards wrote right before he died to his daughter. And then read the letter that Sarah Edwards wrote to her daughter after her husband died. And tell me your faith is not stirred. Read, read the moment where Martin Luther stands in 1521 on the birthday of the Protestant Reformation and Diet of Worms. All of these men whom he's walked with and has respected and they say they spread all of his works across the table and they say, recant from this. And he comes and he says his famous statement, unless I'm convinced by what? Sacred Scripture. I will not recant. My conscience is held captive by the Word of God. And to act against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Read those moments and, and, and let your faith be provoked. Read, read about William Tyndale when he's gathered around and, and some of the authorities of his day are talking with him and they said, we would rather lose the word of God than the popes and the councils. And Tyndale was entertaining thoughts, thinking out loud about, just dreaming about translating the Bible and giving it to the common man. And that's when they said this. And he said, if God should grant me the days and the grace to do it, the plowboy in the field will know God's word better than you do. See, I think if, if Tyndale and Wycliffe and Rogers, if they were here this morning, they would just close their eyes. And when we said, turn to Ephesians 3.14, they would close their eyes and listen and weep. Because of the gift that was given to us in God's word. You know, there are people, I've read stories of people who had, who lived in the Congo and they had one page of translated the book of Genesis. One page. And they would read it every day. We have ten Bibles in our house and none of them are getting read. Why? Because we're buying into cultural ideas. Truths that are one inch deep when the God of the universe who created us, who can tell us a few things about life. He gives us His Word. Philippians three seventeen. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Looking to the writings and thoughts of others isn't a statement about the insufficiency of Scripture. Everybody hear that? It's not a statement about the insufficiency of Scripture. It's a statement about the insufficiency and weakness of my own thoughts and the biases that I bring to the text of Scripture. See, the Bible is, is not just something... We Westerns can bind to the notion of kind of a Lone Ranger idea of getting to truth. The Bible doesn't comprehend it that way. You, everyone who was saved in the book of Acts was saved, baptized, and added to the church. And what that, those people would come to do is they would get together, they would break bread, they would share in the apostles' teaching and fellowship. So every time they came together, they were listening to God's word and they were saying, 
I'm learning something from this. I'm learning something from him and from her as we talk together, as we share, as we read God's word together. It's not up for just our solo private interpretation, us against the world, me and Jesus. No, we learn as we, as we interpret this together, as we walk together. We experience God. Are you a learner? Let's take a quick quiz. Now, this is not going to be real intense, I promise. This is the are you a learner pop quiz. Ready? Okay, here's the question. Is your life postured like a disciple or a learner? Ways to test the claim. Number one, we'll start entry level here, okay? Number one, you read scripture daily. So just write that down. Read scripture daily. And you can interact with this later. How you doing? Number two, You bring your Bible to church and you turn to the passages. If we value God's word, we'll bring it with us when the word is being preached. And and we'll turn to these passages because we want to learn. Number three, you're attentive to preaching. You lean forward, you interact, you got pen in your hand because you want to learn from God. When God's word is opened up, you want to be listening. You want to take that home with you. It's not just an intellectual exercise. You want to grow and be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Number four, very important, you don't argue with scripture. If something in your life comes to be seen as not lining up with scripture, instead of arguing, you make it known. And you strive by God's grace to change it, to bring your life into submission. Now, why is that? Let me just stop for a second. Why is that a principle of learning? Well, it's a principle of learning because, in part, the Holy Spirit oversees everything that we learn from the Bible. And, frankly, he's not willing to give you intellectual knowledge that you're not willing to do anything with it. John Blanchard says it much better than that. Listen, the man who is not prepared to heed the word of God obediently will not even be able to hear it correctly. That is so good. Let me read that again. The man who is not prepared to heed the word of God obediently will not even be able to hear it correctly. This is why the parables become windows to some people and walls to others. Bring our life under the authority of God's word and you will find it speaking left and right. Number five, beyond that, there will almost always be some good book you're reading that helps you understand the Word of God better. So that's the listen to the teachers side of things. Truth transforms, error confuses, heresy damns. This isn't new. This this is very old. The question is, are your roots in deep? Are your roots in God's Word? Or are your roots planted in the shallow ideas of our culture? Christian parents, you have a responsibility to raise your kids in the teaching of God's word. That doesn't merely mean bringing them to church. It's much more than that. Go back and read Deuteronomy 6 and ask God to open your eyes to see the massive gravity of that command. Get rooted in doctrine. 
It will feed your faith. It will mature your walk. It will inform your decisions. It will guard your marriage. It will equip your witness. And it will fuel your worship. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. God, I pray that everyone here would come to a place where we identify with the psalmist when he said, your words to me are sweeter than the honey in the honeycomb. Your law is perfect, reviving the soul. More to be desired are your testimonies than gold, even much fine gold. Lord, make that our heart's cry. Make that a reality in our lives. God, I pray that for those here who have only read the Bible as something, a dry duty, that tomorrow morning, Lord, it would be sweet. Lord, and increasingly, day after day, it would be the more and more principle. Lord, they would read it more and want it more. And then they would read it more to the place where they could look someone else in the eye and say, I need God's word. I know that now. I crave God's word. I need God's word for this difficult decision I'm making. I I don't want to make it on my own. I want God's word to inform me. Make us that kind of people. Make us a people who are grounded in truth. God, and preserve the next generation from this culture and the force of secularism. Root us and anchor us down. Lord, we know there's no other way to do that except through your word. So do it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Matt, incredibly helpful. Stay composed here. We're going to take a moment to pray this morning together in this area. She had it finished quite early. Obviously, the Lord knew that we needed time with the Lord individually. Uh, and I'm, I'm just going to think out loud with you for a moment. I don't know if I've ever been so concerned for this issue as a pastor as I am right now. Uh, I've said this before. I remember living in the church in a time when study Bibles were novel and you got one and you used it and you studied. And studying the Bible was something that was a bit of an obsession in the church and people loved to do it. It was discussion and talk. And We don't live in that time anymore. We live in a dangerous, dangerous time because somehow we've become convinced that we can do Christianity without being learners. And this image on the board behind me is a very accurate image. 
I think what the church faces in the church, and I, I don't need to refer this morning to the churches out there. You know the ones down the street that we don't think all that much of? I don't even need to talk about them this morning. Because here in our midst is sufficient need for ground to be recaptured. There is a huge need in our lives for assaulting the beach of learning. And as Matt said, very well and helpful, messages don't make us learners. They just inform us of where we're at. Right now, all this, all this did was take a ruler out, and you and I found ourselves on it. Now, what we do in response to this will be the indicator of whether we're learners or not. And, you know, if you don't get off the boat here, I'm not sure you're real safe even then, but it's when you go to take the beach when you will find opposition and warfare and difficulty. You will be opposed. And it will feel like you're being wounded when you go to pick the Word of God up and make it a part of your life, to make it the most influential voice in your thinking, you will feel wounded. You will feel a battle. You will feel like you are dying. Now let me tell you why that's so much true for us. Because we live way too connected to our flesh and not enough connected to the truths of the Spirit of who we are. Because that's how our culture lives. Our culture lives to make us feel a certain way as fast as we can. Drug use, party scene, buy a quick fix, zone out and watch something that feels good. Listen, the church is becoming a place where we don't want to fight anymore. We've lost our fight. I am very concerned. I want you to hear this. As one of your pastors, I am very concerned for how unbiblical some of your thinking is. I'm very concerned. I'm very concerned that what we do here uh, in meetings is not finding its way into convictions in our lives. Do you understand? Christians have an attitude. I'm not saying we become arrogant, but we are to be firm. And our culture is moving us because we are not firm. We do not own things deep into our hearts to where there is a little bit of an attitude. I appreciate an 82-year-old man like J.I. Packer who stands in the midst of, of all that's surrounding him, sliding away from truth, and he holds his ground. And he says, I will be a thorn in your side to the day that I die if that's the direction you're going in. And God have mercy on the culture that when the church stops being the salt in the midst of the world. Matt used some very helpful phrases. There's way too much arguing with Scripture going on. It's arrogant. It lacks humility. We are fools. But we're very convinced, aren't we, that if I can just do it this way, it will be better for me. And we will argue with the Word of God. Now, when? I want to know this for me. I want to know, when am I going to be humble and shut up and believe God 
rather than believing my arguments against God. Have we forgotten some of these words? Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. But the prophets hung around God and, and had it right. Jeremiah said, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. When Matt read through this little list, I wrote next to the note, the roots are not deep in these areas. A little statement he put, get your view of God from Scripture. Get your view of singleness, marriage, divorce, suffering, forgiveness, salvation, human dignity, depression, child-rearing, vocation. I wrote, the roots are not deep in these areas. The church is sliding down the hill. Our parenting looks like the world. Our marriages look like the world. Our view of salvation is beginning to be muddled. Our view of how to deal with the human soul. The church has long given up on how to deal with depression. We don't have an answer anymore. This, this is a place to die on. Okay? This is a hill that this church, as long as I'm here, as long as these other men serve here, uh, this will be a church that we will die. This will be a hill that we will die on. This, this word is the only basis for me to wake up tomorrow and make a decision in my life. And I'm honest with you in saying, I mean, I sat through worship kind of knowing where we're going this morning, thinking, Lord, I'm contending with you too much. I'm arguing with you too much, God, because I don't feel like doing that. you guys right now you're not doing something that the God of this universe calls you to do because you don't feel like doing that I'd like to be nice about this but that would be an altar call for fools fools I just don't feel like doing that it's not that I don't know to do it I don't feel like doing it and I'm contending with the word of God rather than letting it rule over me Oh, Jeremiah, you were right. Your words were found. I ate them. And your words became to me. They were not at one point, but they became to me a joy and a delight of my heart. What I'd like for us to do this morning is I would like for us just to humble ourselves before the Lord. I think there's grounds that many of us would find for a great deal of repentance in this category. And we have managed to busy our lives and fill our lives with all kinds of ideas and, and entertainment and things. Uh, but we have become shallow and weak in convictions. And we are too easily blown along. And we are needing to refine ground. I'm a disciple. I'm called to be a learner. I'm called to sit at the foot of Jesus. 
and ask a lot of questions and take a lot of notes all the time. And if I'm not doing that, I have great grounds for repentance. And quite honestly, you can't really go too much farther in your Christian life if that's not square one. These are, these are the building blocks of Christianity. If I'm not a learner, all we will be in the church is a source of argument. Argue with our covenant group leader. Argue with the person next to us telling us how to live godly. Argue, argue with this message. You argue this morning with the message. Did you listen to Matt? Thought, oh, you know, that's too heavy-handed. That sounded legalistic. Now argue. Let's let's stand up together. We are, we are waiting on you right now to take words that come through our ears, to transfer them into our hearts. Or we're waiting on you for that, that mysterious thing that you do when you take words and you make them living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, and piercing the divisions of bone and marrow disclosing the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. God, come. Come in this moment, Lord. This word needs to be a living word in our lives. Lest many, many here present become people that we once walked with and that we once knew. I remember when that one used to be here. I remember when they used to be married. What happened to their children? I remember. Lord, we don't want to just remember. We want to continue in the good of your word. We want to walk in righteousness. We want to reap what we have sown that's good and plentiful and abundant. God, we want your word that you send forth to accomplish its purpose, to come into our lives and accomplish its purpose. God, I pray that this is a a holy, solemn hour for this church to keep us from sliding any farther away from being disciples who learn, who sit at your feet, who humbly are aware my goofy ideas need to be transformed. I need the Word of God like I need nothing else in my life. Lord, bring us back to the place where we realize that man doesn't live by bread alone. Lord, there's something more in my life that I need besides daily routines, stuff, and things, and people. I need Your Word in my life. God, I pray right now You would begin to turn our hearts from carelessness to carefulness. God, turn us from callousness in this area to brokenness. Lord, bring us right now. God, begin to inform hearts with an attitude of repentance right now. Lord, that we are we're not wanting to resist you. Lord, we're wanting to repent. God, we're wanting to turn afresh to you. We're wanting to confess to you today. Lord, I have neglected your word. 
I have not found your word. Pursued your word. Studied your word. Supplanted my thoughts with your word. God, I have been negligent. Oh, Lord, have mercy on me today. Lord, I do not deserve the favor you would give to me in my life that you would establish again the place of your word and rekindle in my heart a passion for your word. But Lord, that's exactly what we ask you to do. Lord, we come before a throne of grace. Lord, I thank you that it's not, it's not a throne of performance, God. I thank you that we don't come today saying because we've read so many Bible passages, we now can ask you to work in these areas. But God, we come before a throne of grace. God, we don't take that place lightly. Lord, we don't deserve to have access to favor and help. But it's exactly what we're doing right now. Lord, revive us. Come with grace and mercy, Lord. And draw our minds afresh. And draw our attention to You, God. And rekindle the flame in our hearts. God, open Your Word to us once again. God, take the appetite that we have for this world and its trinkets and its ideas and the ways in which it brings pleasure to us, God, and distance us from those things. God, and turn our hearts afresh again to You, delighting in truth, eyes wide open, feeling the warmth of Your truth once again in our hearts. God, make it that we don't simply do this because we have been stirred to feel obligated to do it. God, let us find your word and let them be a delight to us. God, we always do what we delight to do. Make your word again to be a delight to us, Lord. That we are eager. Lord, make us to be like those nagging knucklehead disciples you had. Who came with stupid questions over and over again. Lord, make us to pull on your coattails because something about you has piqued our curiosity again. And we have to ask you. We want an answer. God, bring us back to those days again in our hearts and in our lives. Deepen, deepen conviction and roots in our lives. Bring us back to the place of being a peculiar people in this day and age in which we live. Oh, Spirit of God, write on our hearts right now. Lord, write on our hearts individually. Lord, I thank you that you know my name and you know names here this morning. And I thank you that you're reminding folks of things that you said to them last week and two months ago and how you've been calling to them and all that you've been particularly doing to draw them to this place. God, remind folks and build faith all throughout this room that you have set this moment up, God. You have been working to bring people to this place to respond in faith and to see a new day begin in their hearts. Oh, Lord, move. Move in our midst right now. Spirit of God, move throughout this place. Bring the breath of your Spirit. Lord, can these dead bones, can these dry dead bones of our devotions live? Oh, God, you know. You know, Lord. Would you breathe afresh, God, upon our lungs? God, where there's been dryness, God, would you let there be fresh sinews and flesh formed on that which has become old, that which we've departed from? God, blow upon our lives the breath of your Spirit, greater than our weakness, greater than our death. God, blow upon our lives. Spirit of God, come. Come in this time. Come when we're gathered here right now. 
God, let us be aware you are working. You are moving our hearts. You are helping our thoughts. You are motivating us fresh. God, as we sing now, as we capture you again in our sights through song, Lord, would you stir us and write upon us and draw our attention to you and be specific, Lord, and build faith into our hearts, Lord, for the journey in the days ahead. Lord, prepare us to get out of the front of this boat and go towards this beach. Bullets flying, pain being felt, fears and discomforts and inconvenience all around us. But God, give us a Holy Spirit-given tenacity to die on this beach if we much must. But Lord, to fight, to learn from You. Help us, Lord. Very word.